would ask you this morning to open up your copies of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We continue our journey through the second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, and we come to the end of chapter 6 and the very beginning of chapter 7. Our text this morning begins at verse 14 of the 6th chapter and carries us through the first verse of chapter 7. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us in your word. And we are thankful that you have given us this word today for us to consider. That we might live lives of holiness. That we might live lives in which we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that is just the beginning of our relationship with our Savior. But that we will follow him each and every day of our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? In this letter, Paul has been pointing us to the eternal reward that Christians have in helping us to understand what it means to be a Christian. He's shown us that our present sufferings are nothing to be compared with our eternal reward. He's encouraged us to think about our heavenly dwelling with the Lord himself. And how we have been given all blessings in Christ as we are united to Christ. Now, Paul calls us to holy living. He tells us that being a Christian means being changed now. That when we trust on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and our sins are forgiven, that is the beginning of our life in Christ. 
and that Jesus is with us all the way of our life into eternity and forever. And so this morning, Paul speaks to us about holiness, about the holiness of the believer that is a consequence of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, Paul asks us some questions about holiness. He asks us questions that point to us the necessity of holiness in the Christian's life. And then secondly, Paul shares with us some scriptures about holiness. That the idea that a Christian should be holy is not Paul's idea. It's not something that's just practical or is for the Corinthians in their day. No, it is something that is grounded in the eternal truth of God's word. And then finally, and I think critically important, Paul shows us that promises are what produce holiness. That the promises of God precede our holiness. Questions about holiness, scriptures about holiness, and promises that produce holiness. Well, let's begin then by looking at this passage, and it is a bit of an interesting passage. You may not know it from looking at your Bibles, but this is a relatively controversial passage academically. And so you may have a footnote or a side note in your study Bible, but you probably aren't aware that academics who don't necessarily profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ come to this text and say, we don't think Paul wrote this. We don't think it belongs here in 2 Corinthians. This is something that someone later has, has stuck in to try to make a point. And what they say is, it doesn't fit in the flow of the book. And it is true that if you were to look at chapter 6, verse 13, and if you were to skip right to chapter 7, verse 2, there is a flow from those two verses. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Make room in your hearts for us. That seems to go together. They're both talking about the heart and about love. And they also say that this passage contains several unusual words that Paul doesn't use anywhere else. And so, most of all, they object to the practical, moral impact of this passage. They don't want to deal with it. And so it is easier for them to say, this is something that was stuck in after the fact. It's not from Paul. But I'm glad to tell you that their analysis does not bear scrutiny. The first and I think most important thing is, is that the church has never doubted that this passage was written by Paul and belongs exactly here in this letter. All the versions of our Bibles from the very first forming of the canon, have had 2 Corinthians and had this passage. The church has never doubted it. There's also the matter that although Paul does use some unusual words in this section, he uses actually six words that are unique, not used elsewhere. That's not unusual for Paul. As a matter of fact, just in this letter of 2 Corinthians, he uses 50 such words. And they don't doubt the rest of this book because of it. Paul uses unusual words in other epistles as well. In Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians. 
And so the point proves too much. You end up saying, we don't know what's unusual for Paul because we don't think Paul wrote any of it. It's ridiculous. And this passage actually does fit into the flow of Paul's thought. It actually fits in a good spot between chapter 6, verse 13, and chapter 7, verse 2, because what Paul is doing is he's speaking about reconciliation and about the love that flows from reconciliation and how our hearts are opened up by the Lord reconciling us to himself and how that should open our hearts to others. And so that opening up of the hearts has a practical impact. Paul is telling us that he wants us to turn our lives to the Lord and to turn our backs on the world, to abandon the world so that we might live for Jesus. Now, the second difficulty with this passage is that there are misunderstandings about its main purpose. Some view this as a call to have nothing at all to do with unbelievers. You have to be separate from the world. So you can't ever go into business with someone who's not a professing Christian. You probably shouldn't take instruction in math or in physics or in biology from someone who's not a Christian. You maybe shouldn't even live in a neighborhood with someone who's not a Christian. And some take this to such an extent, what they say is, not only do you need to separate from non-Christians, you need to separate from other believers who won't separate from Christians. And so we end up in a, a sort of a contest in which we see how many degrees of separation must we have. Must there be two or three or five or six degrees of separation from people who will not separate from people who will not separate from, non, from unbelievers. This promotes an us against them mentality in this text. Now, some have also tried to take what I think is one application of this text and to make it the main point. Namely, that is, that Christians should not marry unbelievers. And I will grant that this is an application of this text. But you don't need this text for that truth. The Bible is full of texts supporting the idea that believers are to join in covenant marriage only with other believers. And the problem with viewing this text this way is we look at it and we make a quick analysis that goes something like this. This text forbids marriage with unbelievers. I'm married to a believer, so I can now ignore this text. It doesn't say anything to me. And so we lose the point of what Paul is saying. In reality, this text cuts close to home for the church. Paul is not just warning us about how bad the world is. He's not telling us that we need to be distant from the world. And we actually know this for a fact. Because the previous letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth backs this up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. And so what Paul is saying there is, if I was telling you not to associate with unbelievers, you'd have to leave the world. Because unbelievers are everywhere. And unbelievers live like we would expect them to live. They profess that they do not believe in God and they do not believe in the God of the Bible. So why would they listen to the Bible? Why would they behave in accordance with God's word? What Paul is saying here is we need to be careful because there are some who name the name of Christ and yet still choose to ignore God's word. They are whom we need to disassociate with. We need to be careful that that does not become a part of our life. It's a warning for the church and for the believer, for you, to live in a way that separates from evil. So Paul begins this passage with a command that uses a picture. Now, it's clear from his statement, it is a clear command in the imperative voice. He says, do not be unequally yoked. Don't do this, Paul says. You can almost imagine him raising his voice at this point as he dictates the letter. And just as much as in the last sentence in chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul says, widen your hearts, you must do this. So he gives a similar command here, do not be unequally yoked. And the picture here is of two animals yoked to a plow. Now, I have to tell you, I have no expertise in farming, and that puts me in good company here in Houston, Texas. But Paul's picture is so vivid that even I can understand it. Now, if you understand the basic principles of farming, that basically there is a contraption that has a blade on it that is dragged through a field to cut what's called a furrow so that seed can be placed in that line, you understand this picture. Because that contraption is dragged through the field in Paul's day by animals. They would hook it to animals and the animals would carry the contraption through and the field would be plowed. And what Paul is saying here is do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he's drawing on a principle from Deuteronomy 22 in which God says, do not yoke an ox with a donkey. There's your picture. I want you to imagine, even with your limited farming experience, a plow in which a gigantic burly ox is hitched together with a little old donkey. Now, could you imagine what plowing would be like? There's no way that plow is going to go straight. As a matter of fact, the donkey's feet might not touch the ground because the ox is so big. It's absolutely ridiculous. You don't need to be an agricultural expert to say that's a really dumb way to farm. You see, that's what Paul wants us to see, that this is obvious. That if we are, as believers, yoked with unbelievers, we are due failure. And misery. And so the idea here is that believers cannot live in accordance with unbelievers. Once you have come to Jesus, you are changed forever. You cannot have the same goals. You cannot have the same likes as those who do not believe in Jesus. 
your life as a believer takes on a whole new meaning and purpose. And Paul explains this through a series of five questions. They are dramatic contrasts that are designed to make us see the difference clearly, just like the ox and the donkey. The answer to each of these questions is most obviously, well, none, or no, or nothing. It's not something you have to think about. You don't need to come up with a nuanced answer to these questions. You know, too often, nuance is used in the church to excuse unbiblical behavior. We use a nuance to say, well, we're not sure that God's word applies in this case, or it applies to me, or that that's really what God's word means. That's not what Paul's doing here. He wants our attention. And more, he wants our obedience to God's will. And so the first question that he takes up is, what partnership has unrighteousness with lawlessness? We might ask it this way. Could the breaking of the law have partnership with the fulfilling of the law? Because that's what lawlessness means. It actually literally means no law. And so Paul says, how could righteousness, that is practicing justice, accomplishing the correct behavior in accordance with the law, how could that have a partnership with lawlessness and disobedience? These are obvious opposites. You can't say you're following God's law by breaking it. It makes absolutely no sense. And yet, we see this now in the modern church. Excuses have been made that the Bible is not for our times, and so we don't need to listen to it here. So-called ministers actually praise the murder of children in abortion. And they go to abortion clinics and bless the property. God's word about marriage is decried and denied as being too restrictive and unloving. And we're told that in order to be loving, that is, in order to be righteous, we have to actually violate God's word. That's somehow more loving to be unrighteous. The second question allows Paul to go even further. It's not just the idea of a partnership, but of a fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? You see, partnership has the idea of a business, of cooperating with someone else. But fellowship is deeper. It involves a relationship, communion, a sense of unity. That communion is so united that what belongs to one is said to belong to the other. What is true of one is true of the other. And so Paul tells us that light and darkness cannot have fellowship. And Paul is not just talking about the outcome of this partnership. He's talking about the source. Because he describes believers as light. And he describes unbelievers as darkness. Now Jesus calls believers the children of light. In Luke chapter 16. And he uses this name because believers are the children of God. And God himself is light. John tells us in his first letter, In God there is no darkness at all. 
At the same time, Jesus tells us that unbelievers prefer darkness because their deeds are evil. And yet believers, because of what Jesus has done, have been transformed from darkness into light. The third question that Paul asks is, what accord has Christ with Belial? And so now Paul raises a fundamental difference. How can Jesus have accord with Satan? Because that's what Belial is. The word Belial means something like worthlessness. And so taken as a name, it is applied to Satan. And so Paul is saying, how can Satan and Jesus come together? They are implacable enemies. Satan resisted all of Jesus' ministry. Satan wanted Jesus destroyed. And Jesus came to destroy he who had the power of death. That is, the devil. Now, there's an interesting way that Paul puts this. He says, what accord has Christ with Satan? And the Greek word for accord here, you would recognize. Because if I give it to you, it's something like symphony. That's what the word is in Greek. And so if I were to say to you, if you were sitting out on your back porch on one of these gorgeous days this last week or two in Houston, that'll last about another two weeks and be done, in which the air is crisp and it's not too cold, but not too hot, and you were listening to a wonderful symphony on your speaker next to you, perhaps some wonderful Beethoven or Mozart, if you're me. And if all of a sudden some kids from the neighborhood came by and with sticks and metal trash can lids began pounding and banging, would you say that that accompanied the symphony well? No, you'd say it's ruining it. It's interjecting itself into it. It's trying to take it over. It's trying to deprive you of that symphony. That's the idea that Paul is getting here. There is no accord at all between Jesus and Satan. There is no middle ground to find. There's no gray area. It's black and white. The fourth question that Paul asks is, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, to make sure that we understand he's talking about believers and unbelievers, he makes it explicit here. He actually uses those terms. The one who believes and the one who does not believe. And by portion, what he means here is possession. The idea here is how can an unbeliever possess the kingdom of God? And how can a believer, so-called, Possess the passing world. It can't happen. The believer's possession is the kingdom of God. And the unbeliever wants no part of that. The fifth and final question that Paul takes up in verse 16 is, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so he asks finally, How can the dwelling place of God be in agreement with idols? It's impossible. They're polar opposites. God is the living and true God who speaks. Idols are deaf and dumb and dead. They have no existence. They are created by people. The idea here is that God is the only true and living God. The idols are vain. 
God is all that they are not. So what Paul is asking you here is how can you as a believer live and think like an unbeliever? How can the church act like the world? How can it compromise God's word and live like it's unimportant? There must be a difference for all to see. Paul then begins to ground his statements in Scripture. This is so often what Paul does. He gives us a statement and then he proves it from God's Word. He wants us to see that the authority here is not Paul's authority, but is God's authority. And yet, he does this in an interesting way. When we think of using Scripture to support something, we try to find a verse that says exactly what we want it to say. And then we say it to someone and we give them the citation so they can look it up. We quote it precisely. But that's not what Paul does here. He actually takes several verses, at least six it seems, and he weaves them together to give us the sense of the scripture. But don't think that this means that Paul has a low view of scripture. No, it's actually the opposite. Paul says, as God said. And then he moves on to the scriptures. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, as David wrote, as Isaiah prophesied, as Moses said. No, he equates the Bible with God speaking. As a matter of fact, this emphatic formula is typically only used in the prophets as they give their prophecy of what God has given them to speak to Israel. They'll say, thus says the Lord, and they will speak. This is the only instance in all of the New Testament where this exact formula is given. So Paul is telling us that this is a part of God's word. And in case we missed it, at the end of his use of scripture, in verse 18, he says, says the Lord Almighty. He reminds us that the God who speaks is the God who is all powerful and true. Now, notice what idea Paul links the scriptures to. There were five questions before us, and the cumulative contrast of these questions is overwhelming. Now, we might have thought that the capstone question that Paul would come with, the very last question to hit us with, would be to say, what accord has Christ with Satan? That's got to be the culmination, right? But that's not what Paul does. He actually culminates on what agreement has the temple of God with idols. It's the idea of God's people as the temple of God. Now, why does Paul use this image? I think he does it to show the foundation for Christian action and behavior. The Christian lives according to God's word, not just because it's the right thing to do. Right? Kids, let's be honest here for a moment. When your parents ask you to do something, isn't the worst possible answer to your question, why? Because I said so. Right? It doesn't really help you, does it? You want to know the reason behind it. And so, the Christian is to live a life of holiness, not just because God says so. Now, it's important when your parents say to do something because they said so, that's important and you should. 
But there can be more behind it as well. And so we live not just because God says so, but the Lord gives us even more, so much more. For the believer to live is to be in accordance with our relationship with God. It's important for us to understand what Jesus has already done is to bring us into a deep relationship with God. And the picture that Paul puts before us is that God dwells among his people. The temple of God is us. The Holy Spirit has done a work in believers such that God dwells in the middle of the church, the corporate body of believers. And so the word here for temple that Paul uses is not the ordinary word for temple. It means more than just a building. It is the holy place, the sanctuary, if you will. It is the place that is set apart for God. It is holy because the one who dwells there is holy. So what Paul is doing is telling us to live in accordance with reality. We must not live like those who have no part in the Lord, who have no relationship with the Lord. Because if we believe in Jesus, God himself dwells with us. Now, this is one reason why worship is important. It's a reason why worship is important even in the middle of these times of coronavirus. It's why we have not abandoned worship. It's why it is important for the people of God to remain together and to come and corporately worship God. Because we acknowledge the reality that God is found among his people. That is the reality of the world, no matter what else is around us. And so the best way for Paul to describe this reality is through God's statements in Scripture. And so he starts with a quotation from Leviticus chapter 26. Just in case you were thinking that the book of Leviticus was not that important, Paul gives us a quotation that is supremely important for us. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says, I will walk among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And Paul also draws on another scripture from Ezekiel chapter 37. The second half of that phrase comes from Ezekiel 37. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this reminds us that this is true regardless of circumstances, whether you are Israel just coming into the land and establishing your kingdom, or whether you are in exile in Babylon. God is still your God. You are still his people. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Now, because this is true, God tells his people to depart from the uncleanness of the world. Now, remember... This does not mean that you and I should get on a rocket ship and shoot off to another planet to get away from sin in the world. No, it means we are not to live in accordance with the world's principles. In order to enjoy the presence of the Lord, we must leave the land of sin. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 52 verse 11 here as an application of Leviticus 26. 
God dwells in the midst of his people. And so Isaiah then was talking about leaving Babylon to come to the promised land. And Paul applies it to you and to me to say we are to leave the idolatries of the society around us and to live instead for the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Paul is not explicit here. He doesn't give you a list of things not to do. I think sometimes we want that because it would be easier for us. But we can go to God's Word and to see what is described as unclean. Things like lying, stealing, immorality, violence. We can go to the Ten Commandments. It's not that we can't find out what God says is unclean. It's that often we don't want to apply it to our lives. We don't want to take God's Word and make it practical for ourselves. Then a third set of scriptures that remind us that it's not just that God dwells among us. In verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. God tells us that he is our father. We have been changed forever by Jesus. We have been brought into the family of God. And so Paul alludes here to the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. He also alludes to Isaiah chapter 43, in which God says, Do not withhold, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth to me. God's people are his sons and daughters. So we have to see that living a holy life is not just an option. Not even just the best amongst a group of options. It is a fundamental part of being a child of God. God has made it clear to us in his word. If we want the presence of God, we must understand that that means a change in life. And then the third thing that we see, as Paul brings this section to a close, is that promises produce holiness. We see this in chapter 7 and verse 1. Now this is one of the instances, you've heard me tell you before, that the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible are not inspired. And this is one instance where if I could get out an editor's pen, I would make chapter 7, verse 1, become verse 19 of chapter 6. Because I think it clearly goes with the passage we've been talking about this morning. And verse 2 of chapter 7 begins a new thought for Paul. And what's hiding a little bit here in our translation, the connection, is this word, since. It's an English translation that's hiding an old friend we have and have talked about him often. Since could also be translated, therefore. Now you know when you see the word therefore, what do you do? You look back to see what the therefore is therefore. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Therefore, we have these promises, beloved. What promises, Paul? The promises that God will make his dwelling among us. The promises that God tells us to go out from the midst of unholiness. The promise that God says, I am your father. Because we have those promises, we are to act. Make no mistake, this points us back to the promises. These promises 
are more important. They are the grounding of the scriptures. The greatest promise in the Bible is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is a promise that is greater than the promise that our sins would be forgiven. It's more spectacular than the promise of eternal life. Because both of those promises are just a means to enjoying our relationship with the Lord. To having God as our God forever and ever. This is the great promise of Scripture. I will be their God and they will be my people. It was a promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was a promise God gave to Israel in the book of Exodus. And again later in 2 Samuel and in Jeremiah 31, just to name a few instances. It is the great promise of the New Testament found in the culmination of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. But the thing is, not only do we need to see the promise, we need to see the priority of the promise. The promise comes first. It is because we have these promises, Paul says. And you could translate the word have here, possess. Because we possess these promises, then we can live a life of holiness. We don't try to live a certain way first to inherit the promises. You have to begin with Jesus. There is no cleaning up your act to come to Jesus. Without Jesus, you are lost. Without Jesus, you have no hope. You can't clean up. But with Jesus, all is possible. Well, what is it that is possible? Paul tells us, he tells us the effect of this promise. Once we come to Christ, once we believe then we can live a holy life. We can live as those among whom God will dwell. Now, there are two aspects of this effect. Paul gives us one negative and one positive. First, negatively, he tells us, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. This way that Paul says this, let us cleanse, is an action that has no second thoughts. It is something that we choose and follow on with. It is a course of life. It's not something we can put on and off at will. We are to pursue holiness all of our lives. And in every way, Paul says, cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Not just the worst, not just ones that are bad in society, not just ones that will get us talked about, but every defilement. In thought, in word, in deed. And also in every aspect of who we are, in body and spirit. That is, we are to cleanse ourselves of sins of the body, drunkenness, immorality, and sins of the spirit like pride and hatred. We are to put them all off as ones who have received the promises of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Now, positively, we are to bring holiness to completion. He says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
It is never enough just to avoid sin. We must actively cultivate holiness in our lives. And Paul describes this as bringing holiness to completion. This is a present tense verb. This is something that you must be doing right now in your life. It's not something that you look forward to. Right now, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you have walked with Jesus, right now you should be cultivating holiness in your life. You should be following the Lord and His Word. It's what we are to be doing right now. It is the ongoing task of life. It will not be fulfilled, the Scripture tells us, until glory. But that does not mean that we are to shirk the work of holiness today. Because of what Jesus has done, we are to respond. We are able to respond because Jesus has changed us. We can pursue holiness because we possess these promises. Is that your view of life? A life to be lived for Jesus? Now, in conclusion, the Lord calls us to holy living. He calls us because He has made us a new creation in Christ. He enables us through the power of His Holy Spirit. He has made Himself clear in His Word. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There is no agreement between the living God and false idols. God has called the believer to Himself by faith in Jesus Christ. He dwells among His children. We need to know that truth. We need to know that truth deeply. So deeply that we can live our lives daily in its light. Let's pray.